Good evening, please be seated. Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation begins with five simple words, but they are key to understanding the book of Revelation. And the first five words are the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite quotes concerning Revelation is what one scholar declared concerning it. He said, the book of Revelation will either find you mad or leave you mad, you know. And, uh, and of course, that's very dramatic and it's wonderful drama, but uh, it isn't true uh, concerning the book. I think that there are a lot of people, and I would say that my experience in just running into the average Christian, uh, you know, here and there through the years, that if you bring up the mention of the book of Revelation, that the average Christian would say it is a hopelessly complex book. There is no uh, possibility of understanding it. It is a mystery. There's so many different takes on it. It's just hopeless. And I never read or I never study uh, the book of, of Revelation. But you notice that uh, the first two words, it is the revelation. It is a revelation. And the word revelation is apocalypsis. And it literally means an unveiling. It was a word that was used in ancient times if they were to uh, uh, unveil a, a great statue in the, in the city square. It would be covered by a great tarp or something like that. And then on the right moment as the band would play or whatever, they would then pull the tarp off and the sculptor would, uh, sculpture would be uh, unveiled. And that's what the word is, is here. It is an unveiling, it's an uncovering. God intends the book of Revelation uh, to be understood. Now I think there are a couple of keys to understanding the book and uh, one of them is that it kind of requires a little bit of an understanding of the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation and fully 278 of those verses are clear direct references to the Old Testament. Uh, there are over 500 uh, kind of references or inferences toward the Old Testament in, in the book. So by the time you take uh, 278 out of the 404 verses, and, and those can be easily understood by going back to their Old Testament origin. And then in so many places in the remaining verses, uh, God declares what it is that's happening. He defines the symbolic language that he's using that uh, the book unfolds. But it unfolds to a person who understands a little bit about the Old Testament. And that's one of the reasons that we like to go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation on the Sunday nights because it, 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 it's so important to, to understand the totality uh, of, of the Bible. The second key to understanding the book is found in verse 19. If you uh, turn there, don't get any hopes that we've just about to finish uh, here at all. And, and, and here is the outline. God has given a divine outline for the book when Jesus speaks to him. And we'll come back to verse 19 a little bit later, more in depth. 
And he writes, he says to John, write the things which you have seen, which by this time in, in John's uh, dealing with the revelation would have constituted chapter one. And then the things which are, which referred to the age in which John was living when he received this particular revelation, that is the church age. And uh, so the things which are, which are chapters 2 and 3, and then the things that, which will take place after this. And uh, the word that is used there for that is metatauta, and uh, it is the same word that is used for the beginning, in the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. So he says in chap chapter 1, verse 19, the things which will take place after this, metatauta, chapter 4, verse 1, after these things, metatauta. So he's in essence giving us the clue that the third division of the book begins in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, that then describes the great tribulation that is going to come upon the world following the removal of the church. And so we have a divine outline, and without an understanding of the Old Testament and without that outline, we could, you know, take pot shots at the book as, as much as anyone. The problem with that is that there's a warning at the end of the book. And, uh, and, and uh, the, the Lord declares concerning the book of Revelation, whoever adds to this book, the plagues that are listed in this book will be added to them. Anyone who takes away from this book, his name will be taken out of the uh, book of life. So it is a book that clearly, with the warning, God is declaring that this isn't a book that we can just come to and, and guess at anything and everything and make it say whatever we want it to say. It is, it is a specific revelation and, and uh, it ought to be clear and we shouldn't be fanciful related to it. I think that that then raises a question in the minds of a lot of people and that is why in the world would God uh, communicate in so much symbolism why would he uh, you know complicate so uh, so much why wouldn't he be uh, more straightforward and more obvious in his message than he is in in uh, uh, revelation why so much of the Old Testament imagery but I think that one of the reasons for it and uh, this book was written probably uh, 94 95 AD and uh, at this particular time, there is a there is a empire-wide persecution against Christians by the Roman Emperor Domitian. Uh, Nero began in earnest the persecution of Christians, and uh, Nero was vicious in his persecution of Christians. But his persecution was largely limited to the city of Rome. Domitian. Uh, made it systematic. He took that persecution and he spread it all over the empire. Domitian declared himself to be God and uh, he demanded that everyone in the Roman Empire would declare Caesar as God, burn incense unto him and all, which of course a Christian would not be able to do. And, uh, and anyone that wouldn't, he began his persecution against, against them. So imagine here is this letter that among other things reveals the end of man's government, the end of man's rule and the ushering out of man's rebellion against God and the ushering in of a new kingdom. If that was put forward in straight forward language and fell into the hands of Domitian or any other number of those that love to persecute the church through the ages, they would look at it and say, these Christians, they're insurrectionists, they're a danger to every government, they're this and this and this and this, and, and, and it would 
perhaps bring even greater persecution upon us. But for a letter like this to fall into the hands of a Domitian or in the hands of a non-believer, in the hands of lots of Christians, in fact, uh, but to fall in the hands of an unbeliever, they would look at it and try and make heads or tails of it, give up on it and say it's just so much mystical nonsense and dismiss it. But for the child of God, you know, it is, we would look at it and say there's no mystery to it at all, and it's important uh, to us. So that could be one of the reasons that it it's, has that, that kind of, of uh, language. Notice further that not only is it a revelation and an unveiling, but it is a very specific unveiling. In the same way that you unveil a statue so that everyone can see the statue in its fullness, you can come to some conclusions about a statue that is covered by a tarp, uh, even, even in that kind of condition, but the unveiling allows us to see that statue in its full detail. This is a revelation or an unveiling of Jesus Christ. When he came in his first coming, in his incarnation, he came as the suffering uh, Savior, as Isaiah declared in chapter 52 and 53 that he, he would. And he came to die on the cross for our sins and to be buried and to rise again. And sometimes we can look at that first coming and say that's all there is to know about Jesus. But if that's all that I know about Jesus, I don't have the full picture concerning him. And so Revelation is written to fill in the blanks a little bit further and to help us to understand that yes, He is the suffering Savior. Yes, He is the one who died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again. All of these wonderful things that we treasure in, in our heart. But He is no longer on the cross. Uh, he is no longer merely risen. He is ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He possesses a glory that is indescribable to us. And it is a glory that is even, you know, greater than we saw in, in the incarnation. You remember in John chapter 17 when Jesus prayed to the Father prior to his, his death upon the cross. And then his resurrection three days later, he said, Father, I would that they could see, you know, me in the glory that I had before I came to this earth. And so here we get to see his eternal glory. And so the Holy Spirit in Revelation pulls the veil off of him, so, uh, so to speak. So we... We'll learn about, we've learned about him in the Gospels and in his grace and his love. His grace and his love carries through into the book of Revelation also. But in the book of Revelation, we see also his righteousness and, and his uh, judgment. And I think it's important to remember that while this book is a revelation of a certain chapter in human history, the final chapter in human history, it is not written supremely for that purpose to let us know how things end. I'm glad we know how things end and all. It is written supremely in order to be a revelation of Him. If I only learn about the seals and the bowls and the trumpets and, and, and the Antichrist and all of that in the book of Revelation, I will have missed the intent of the Holy Spirit related to, to the book. Notice also that the word revelation is singular. It is not the revelations of Jesus Christ. Very often people will refer to the book of Revelations 
or um, and, and, and it isn't revelations it's not multiple revelations it is one single great revelation supremely and that is a revelation of of the Jesus of Jesus uh, himself so we're going to learn a lot about Jesus in this particular book and I think that sometimes uh, people can look at the, the book of Revelation and think that's the last thing that's the last place you're going to learn anything about Jesus on it's all going to be end times and all of these little nuances of this and that and putting a prophecy picture together and, and all and uh, but it's written to unveil him in his fullness fill in the blanks related to how we understand him it is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him so you have the father giving this revelation to the son to show his servants the word servant is doulos it is the uh, the imagery is from the Old Testament of the slave who following his uh, years of slavery to his master decides I love my master and of my own free will and for the rest of my life I'm going to make myself voluntarily a slave to my master and uh, and so this it's referring to uh, believers it's referring to a certain quality of believer actually one who is a servant a doulos and one of the, the all through the ages uh, the, when, when we look at this book in, in, in the type of Christian that it opens up to it opens up supremely to a servant and uh, uh, someone that has that level of commitment to the Lord because when a person has that level of commitment to the Lord that person is going to typically um, in any age um, incur greater persecution than than others who may even know the Lord and and so it is it's a, a book that's a tremendous encouragement to servants to those that are paying a price for their faithfulness to the Lord and it does as Pastor Garth opened us up in prayer here tonight one of the things that it reminds the servant is that our Savior has won our God has won uh, how this ends how human history ends and all there's no doubt about it there's there's no doubt about the fact that we're on the winning side on this by God's grace and all and and so when a person is in the midst of the kind of persecution that Domitian was bringing against the church or is happening in Indonesia tonight or in the Sudan tonight or in Chad tonight or in Iraq tonight or Iran tonight for Christians and all over the world tonight the servant needs to have that encouragement that, that we're on the right side the Lord is is going to win in this whole thing and uh, and it offers a great encouragement uh, to us notice that it's a revelation that's one day going to take place in this earth he said which God gave to show his servants things which must shortly take place what's going to be described in this book are going to be events that will shortly take place uh, on the earth now the word shortly there in in that verse it's the word uh, entakiai in in the Greek and that Greek word literally means quickly or suddenly coming to pass we get our English word tachometer from it 
for our automobiles and, and that kind of thing. The idea that John is, is speaking about here is not so much that the revelation or, or these events may start suddenly, but rather once they do start, they're going to gain in velocity and, and begin to unfold in rapid succession. In other words, once this great tribulation begins to unfold, it will, it will redline pretty quickly. It'll move very, very quickly. He said, again, this revelation which God gave to him, to Jesus, to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it, that is, Jesus signified it by his angel, gave this revelation to his angel, who then gave the revelation to the apostle John. So this has been through some pretty important hands in order for us to be able to sit here tonight and read the book of Revelation. A lot of people have paid, and I think it's always good to think about the Word of God that way, a lot of people have paid a tremendous price for us to be able to hold that Bible on our lap here tonight and to be able to read it. And the book of Revelation has come through some very, very important hands in history, in heaven and on earth, in order for us to, to read it. He speaks of John also, as a servant, that is, as a, a, a doulos. And then further, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things which he saw. And so John is saying that everything that he's about to share, he was an eyewitness of. Notice in verse 3, he speaks of the blessing that's associated with this book. And uh, he said, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Now, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that contains a blessing like this at the outset. And the word blessed means, oh, how happy. So there's a blessing found in the person who reads this book, the person who hears it, and then the person that keeps the commandments that are written within it. And so there's that. We can expect a blessing as we head through the book. Now, at the time in which this letter would have been read in the seven churches that it was delivered to, at that particular time, they didn't all have a copy of it, you know, from the copy machine sitting on their lap or anything like that. So the minister, the pastor would get up and he would read it and he would be blessed for reading it. And then everybody that's listening to it would be blessed by listening to it. And then everybody who obeyed it would have a further blessing by, by obeying it. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to read it and uh, we're going to hear it while we do read it. And we're going to obey it. So we're going to have a triple blessing out of, out of the book of, of Revelation. I think verse 3, one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit begins with a promise of a blessing related to this book is in order that down through the ages that Christians would not just discard it. Say it's hopeless, you can't read, there's nothing to be found here, there's nothing for the Christian today, there's no blessing to be found here. And right at the onset, uh, God said, no, don't do that to this book. There's a tremendous blessing found in it. And he said, for the time is near. And that is to be the attitude that we have related to all of these events and the revelation of, of Jesus, that the uh, end time is near. Excuse me for a moment. Well, that was the first introduction. And so John begins a, a second formal introduction in verse 4. 
he identifies himself, which was the normal way of doing that in in the old in ancient times in letters. John, the writer of the letter, who he's writing to is to the seven churches which are in Asia. Don't think of China or Japan. Think of Asia Minor, which is uh, refers to. Uh, modern-day Turkey and, and all of these seven churches are specifically in the uh, southwestern uh, part of, of modern-day Turkey. So it's written to these seven churches and then he begins with his greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. So the standard greeting of the writers of uh, the New Testament by the Holy Spirit they begin by using the Greek greeting uh, common greeting in the morning for one another they would say grace or unmerited favor may you have a grace filled day a day that's better than you deserve and then the uh, standard Jewish uh, greeting was peace and the writers of the New Testament combine these two it's always in the same order grace first and peace because it's only as I experience the grace of God and understand that this relationship that I have with him is based upon grace that I will be at peace in my relationship with with the Lord and so the repetition over and over and over again in the scriptures because that's something we need to hear over and over again now notice who this grace and this peace uh, come from from him who is and who was and who is to come and that speaks of the father and from the seven spirits who are before his throne speaks of the holy spirit and from jesus christ all three of them the uh, triunity of god the triunity of the godhead is behind this blessing now the father is referred to as him who is and who was and who is to come that speaks of the fact that he's eternal he inhabits the past the present the future time outside of time all at the same uh, time at, at once and it's a mystery but that's what happens when you have the infinite in relationship with the finite and then the holy spirit is referred to as from the seven spirits who are before his throne now you read that and you think at least i do i think what in the world does that mean so the seven spirits who are before his throne what is that i mean sounds like it has a reference to the holy spirit but is it really the holy spirit or is it some other kind of thing and so we ask ourselves is there any place in the old testament where the holy spirit is spoken of in the context of a seven or seven things and there is in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 and there shall come forth uh, verse 1 there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and the branch shall grow out of his roots verse 2 and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him speaking of the Messiah the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and so seven is a number of completion in the Bible so this is speaking about the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit he is the the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jehovah he is divine he is the spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding of counsel of might of knowledge of the fear of the Lord that is that's what he produces in a human life is fear or reverence for God and we'll talk a little bit about all of that when we get to the church at, at Sardis so a reference to the Holy Spirit and then this blessing or this greeting comes also from Jesus Christ and then in verse 5 as he's 
spoken of the Godhead, he then launches in, in verse 5 into this beautiful description of the person and the work uh, of, of Jesus. And he describes him, you know, one thing after another from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. The word faithful there means true or the accurate witness. What is the accurate witness of? Of the Father. Remember when Jesus said to Philip on the night before the cross, he said, if I've been with you so long, Philip, you know, Philip's asking questions that I would ask. And uh, it's always good to have someone in the class that asks those questions because the other half of the class is wanting to ask it too. But uh, they're not foolish enough to do it. So, And uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip said, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the singular. That word the is a good one to circle, at least in your mind. He is the faithful witness of the Father. Uh, no other Christian is that. Uh, no other person is, is that. It's not an excuse on our part as Christians not to grow in holiness and to grow in Christ-likeness. But no one should ever look at uh, a Christian or at another Christian and say, I'm going to come to my conclusions about God the Father and about Christianity on the basis of, of that, uh, that Christian. Because every one of us is going to fall short of being a proper represent, representative of the Father. Because we're not going to be perfect until we get into heaven. But Jesus is always the faithful witness of the Father. And uh, so sometimes you run into people say, oh, I don't go to church. They're just full of hypocrites. And I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And, and uh, you know, I, one time I went to church and... <clears throat> I saw a guy at the church there, and, and he's the biggest rip-off artist in the whole town and everything like that. And they call that a church. I'll tell you, I wouldn't step foot in that again. And, uh, well, that's it. He couldn't rip anyone off while he was in church. I mean, this is a step forward on, on things. But people have, people have an assumption that every single person who walks into a room like this is saved. I, I know one dear brother in this fellowship. I don't know how often this is played over and over again but one dear brother in this fellowship <clears throat> always sat in the back row and uh, he came with his wife he came for over a year before he gave his life to the Lord it's just a glutton for punishment I mean I was teaching long sermons back then on things but but he just and and uh, but so you know we look people come in from all kinds of checking things out trying to figure out what life is about and all of these these kinds of things we look and say well you know this and that and and then it's wrong to to look at another christian and say well you know they slipped up and they said something wrong like that and if that's the way christians are then I... but the problem is is that one day if i reject jesus christ and i reject the father and i reject his salvation i reject all of those things and one day god forbid one day a person ends up at the white throne judgment to be judged eternally for the one sin for which there is no forgiveness and that is a lifelong rejection of Jesus for my salvation they'll never be able to say well you know I saw somebody and they were a hypocrite and this thing and all and in that that whole scene you know all God has to do is just say whoever told you to come to conclusions about me on the basis of people Jesus is the faithful witness of 
the Father. Then notice not only is he the faithful witness, but he is the firstborn from the dead. Now the key word in all this is the word firstborn. What the firstborn meant in that culture and, and uh, in Middle Eastern and, and Asian culture and even so in large part today of, of that, that world in the firstborn was special. The firstborn was unique. There were privileges associated with being the firstborn that the rest of the children in the family didn't have. When dad died, the firstborn in the family would then have the ultimate authority over the family. The firstborn son would receive a double inheritance, double what any of the other children uh, received. And, and, and so this is not saying that Jesus was the first ever to rise from the dead. People were raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus raised people from the dead and uh, raised the Lazarus from the dead, the son of the widow of Nain, the 12-year-old daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. So Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead. What it is saying is that just as the position of the firstborn was a unique one in a family, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is unique in all of human history. And you know why it is? Because they were raised from the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. And those are two entirely different qualities of resurrection. Jesus raising himself from the dead, his resurrection declared him to be the Son of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection uh, from the dead. And so his resurrection is unique, it is special in uh, human history, and it represents his authority over death and his ability to raise from the dead and thus his ability to share his victory over death with all of the rest of us. Notice he is also described there in verse 5 as the ruler over the kings of the earth. I, I can't read that without thinking about Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah declared in the year that King Uzziah died he said I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the angels cried holy 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 and King Uzziah was one of the greatest kings that Judah ever had and he reigned something like 50 years I mean it was 50 good holy wonderful years for the nation now he's dead and the whole nation wonders what's going to happen to Judah now and at that time where everybody's kind of shaking a little bit and maybe Isaiah himself the Lord gives Isaiah a revelation of the throne that's behind all thrones and the throne that's never empty the throne that God sits on and so Jesus is sits on the throne that's never empty he's the throne behind all of the thrones of, of this world it can also in all likelihood uh, refer to the future thousand year reign of Jesus his reign in the millennial kingdom at his second coming he and, and following that he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years and he is just going to actively physically 
uh, and sovereignly rule over the world just as the Old Testament scripture prophesied. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8 and in that day there shall be it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea in both summer and winter it shall occur and the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one just as the scriptures prophesied and then notice John declares concerning Jesus to him who loved us wonderful to think tonight about the fact that the Lord loves us I don't know how he does it I'm so unlovable we don't know either concerning ourselves or you you know and uh, but he does love us and here's John he's in this island of Patmos which is uh, six miles wide and ten miles long and it's basically this big heap of lava and a bunch of caves that they're mining out of and all and here he is probably about 90 years old and he's in this Roman penal colony and uh, this is where he is and he receives this revelation uh, from God and yet it never caused him to doubt the love of God for him he didn't, he didn't base that on his, on his circumstances. Notice what he did base it on. To him who loved us, and here's, here's how God's love was demonstrated for us, who washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's more than covering our sins. Jesus' sacrifice, his death upon the cross for us has prov- provided a washing away uh, of our sins. And a tremendous price was paid in order to do that. And it's humbling and very, very beautiful. And then also in verse 6, and he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And so Jesus has made us his sacrifice. He's, 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 uh, has not only washed us from our sins, but then it's made us a part of a kingdom. We've come out of the kingdom of darkness. We've come into the kingdom of light. But not only has it allowed us to become a part of a different kingdom, but it's allowed us also to become priests. That's how we get to spend our lives. I don't know how you spent your life before you came to know the Lord, but uh, I didn't spend mine in a very priestly fashion. And, uh, and this is the privilege of how we get to live our life now as Christians, as priests. In the Old Testament, the priest had a twofold function. And the priest's twofold function, number one, was to represent God before the people, before the world. He was a representative of God. And Paul writes the same thing concerning us as Christians. We are ambassadors for Christ. And it's our privilege uh, to be that and to do that, to represent the Lord to this world. The second function of the priest was then to represent the people before the Lord in prayer and in intercession and that's the second privilege that is ours to pray for people and to lift them up uh, to the Lord and in in prayer and in intercession for them and and when John thinks about this is how he gets to spend his life he's he's a part of God's kingdom he is a priest this is what he gets to do for God no matter where God has him do it and it just sends him into praise and he says to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen He continues the description of Jesus by talking about his second coming. Behold, he is coming, 
with clouds and every eye will see him even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him even so amen so Jesus is alive he's well and uh, he is coming back one day and he's coming with clouds at the second coming following uh, the great tribulation and uh, remember when Jesus ascended into heaven and all of the disciples there on the Mount of Olives they watch him and watch him I'd have done the same thing just so you couldn't see him any longer you know can you see him you know John can you see him you're the youngest still got good eyes no he's gone now you know they're just looking up there and the angel of the Lord then speaks to them as as the cloud receives Jesus out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up behold two men stood by them in white apparel angels and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And all of this prophesied by Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I was watching, Daniel said in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall, uh, which shall not be destroyed. Jesus ascribed that passage to himself in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. When he said, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of God, the Son of Man, coming uh, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So speaking of his second coming. Notice that at his second coming, every eye is going to see him, even those who pierced him. There will be two groups that will... Uh, major groups that will survive the great tribulation there will be uh, the ungodly some portion of them uh, will survive uh, having survived the bowl judgments and the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and without having taken the mark of the beast and they will mourn at the second coming of Jesus because he will come then at that time uh, to judge them for their sin. There is a second large group, probably the largest group, that will survive the Great Tribulation, and that is a remnant among the Jews. And when Jesus comes at his second coming, he alights on the Mount of Olives, makes a second triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem, and they realize at that particular point that 2,000 years ago, or however the timing will be of all of these events from his first coming, their hearts will be broken over the price that they have paid as a people and the price that they've paid personally in having rejected Jesus as, as their uh, Messiah. So the two groups will mourn, but they'll mourn for different um, reasons. John declares concerning all of this, even so, amen, the word amen means so be it, or that's the truth. Then in verse 8, uh, that Jesus declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so Jesus declares three things about himself here. He declares that he's eternal, he was, he is, 
and he is to come and, and that speaks of eternalness he declares himself to be the almighty he has all might there is nothing that any man or all of mankind together uh, can do to stop his plan in in this world and then he declares himself to be the Alpha and the Omega which is a name for God in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4 you can put it in your margin if it's not there already is a name for God who has performed and done it calling the generations from the beginning I the Lord am the first and with the last I am he so to call himself the first and the last the Alpha and Omega Jesus is declaring himself to be divine that he is God there's a cute story about all of this Walter Martin tells it he's gone on to be with the Lord I was glad I'm glad that I got saved at a time where you could still hear Walter Martin on the radio that guy was tough man was he tough he knew his Bible he knew the Bible he knew the Book of Mormon the Pearl of Great Price Doctrine and Covenants and and uh, he knew the New World Translation of the Jehovah Witnesses he knew I mean he knew all of the Hindu holy books and all these kinds of things so-called holy books and all of this all these kinds of things a man what a mind God God gave him and uh, he used to go around and travel and he'd come to churches just like this and and uh, Walter Martin coming to town and here come the fireworks and and all and so I remember being in a Napa one time and he was he in which is my hometown and he he came to Napa and he was staying in a particular hotel and I just happened to be stumbling through there delivering something or coming to a meeting or some kind of a thing and out he comes from the restaurant and he always used to walk or he had a cross I mean about the size I mean just this, I don't know what kind of spiritual warfare he encountered but um, there's no mistake in this guy's about something pretty intense you know and everything but he used to have these meetings and go all over the place and um, he really maintained control of his meetings and uh, because you know not everybody was happy to hear what he had to say and uh, and and so uh, there was always a question and answer period at the end of it and he came to the question and answer period of it and he tells this story and a man stood up and uh, and he said in essence to, to Walter he said I know that you don't want people to preach or to share here or anything like this it's for questions but if you'll bear with me I think you'll want to hear uh, what I have to say he he said I don't know if you remember and and it was but it was uh, he spoke about many many years earlier like 20 years earlier he said uh, Walter you came into the watchtower organization in Brooklyn New York and Walter Martin uh, did early in his ministry before he became famous as kind of the Bible answer man uh, he thought I'm gonna go visit all these places before they won't let me in later and uh, it was a good thing he did and he went into the watchtower organization and was given a tour of the whole place and everything and he headed out to the reception desk and he was, as he was leaving he talked to the man that was sitting at the reception desk and he said he said if I could show you where Jesus declares himself to be God in the Bible would you believe him to be God Jehovah Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God they believe him to be an angel and the guy said well that's not in the Bible and, and Walter Martin said that's not what I asked you I asked you if I could show you in the Bible 
where Jesus declares himself to be God, he said, would you believe that he is God? And he said, well, that's nowhere to be in the Bible. That's not what I said to you. I said, he said, well, I suppose if, if you can show me where it says that in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible, but if you can show me. And Walter Martin got down right where he's sitting on the desk and he began to pound on it and he began to quote verse 8 I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end you know who was and is or who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty and he pounded and he said it three or four times and he walked out the door and, uh, and the, guy, the guy said I went home that night and I tried to go to sleep and all I could hear like a drum in my head was I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And he said, I gave my life to the Lord that night. And then he became uh, a counter-cult kind of person uh, too. And it's a wonderful story. But that's the power of that verse related to the deity of, of Jesus uh, Christ. Then he, in verse 9 he begins in earnest now the revelation of Jesus in his heavenly glory. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Um, John knew what it was to be persecuted for his faith, for being faithful to the Lord. Uh, we're told uh, through church history, Fox's Book of Martyrs brings it out. Uh, John was the only apostle to die a natural death. Everyone else died a violent death for their faith in the Lord. But it, what doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that there weren't attempts to... Uh, to kill John because of his faith. Uh, church history tells us that one attempt made on his life was to boil him in, in, in oil, but he survived the boiling. And so what is Domitian going to do with this guy? He can't boil him to death and he can't shut him up everywhere he goes. He's faithful to deliver the message concerning Christ. He says, all right, well, I know what, uh, what I'll do. I'll send him to that lava heap out in the middle of the Aegean Sea uh, called Patmos and and uh, that way he can't preach to anyone and uh, can't do any harm. Now, isn't it interesting? God's going to make everything to praise him, isn't he? He's got the power to do it. So he sends him, Domitian sends him now to this island as an outcast, so he's no influence for the kingdom of God. And there on that island, God gives John perhaps the greatest revelation that he had in the entirety of his ministry. And... Uh, uh, it's, it's very hard to fight God. It's, it's very frustrating. And uh, so best not to do it. So here he is. He's in this place. Domitian has put out the decree that everybody in the kingdom has to burn some incense to him and declare that Caesar is God. Now, can you see the Apostle John doing that? Oh, Caesar is God, you know. Uh, right. There's just no way. No way it's going to happen. So he ends up in his faithfulness in this place, but the Lord's going to make all of it uh, to, to praise him. And, and so that's the reason that he was on the island of Patmos, not because Domitian had this. He doesn't look at it as any kind of thing. Well, you know, I was robbed and, and, they, and there was a, and that jury, they were, I'll tell you. And all. He says, no, I was there for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That, that's why. I was there for being faithful to the things of the Lord. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he talks about 
tells us a little bit about how uh, when he received uh, this revelation he received it on the Lord's day when he was in the Spirit so this revelation that he has comes from the Holy Spirit he received it on the Lord's day now there's a couple different interpretations for that some people look at it and say the Lord's day refers to Sunday we talk about Sunday as the Lord's day and so he received this entire revelation on a Sunday that's entirely possible and uh, there's another group that says come on I mean there's no way anybody's gonna get this revelation in one day and and be able to work in the caves the next day you know kind of thing and nowhere in the Bible is Sunday referred to as the Lord's Day so they look at it and say well the Lord's Day refers to the day of the Lord which is one of the names for the great tribulation and that John was taken kind of physically spiritually into that future day and to witness it with his own eyes uh, but then the other group says well wait a second the day of the Lord and the Lord's day are two entirely different things you can't be doing that kind of stuff and uh, so <clears throat> we won't solve it tonight uh, but what we, what we can come away with it is is that this this revelation is a supernatural revelation that was given to John and so he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and he said I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet now trumpets a very clear instrument isn't it they blow a trumpet to get everybody's attention a trumpet would precede uh, a major announcement it would tell everybody a very important announcement is going to be made so he hears uh, behind him a loud voice is, has the clarity and the calling power of, of a trumpet and here's what the voice said saying I am Alpha and Omega the first and the last and, and uh, what you see again Jesus ascribing deity uh, to himself and he says to John what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamos to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea and then John does what anybody's gonna do in that kind of a situation you hear a voice like that and all these things he turns to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and so he turns and the first thing that he sees there are seven golden lampstands we're going to see I think in verse 20 a little bit later that the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches uh, of, of revelation so he sees the seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the Son of Man and here we have um, one of only two physical descriptions of Jesus in the entirety of the Bible one is found in Daniel and then one is is found uh, right here so he looks and he sees someone standing between in the midst of the seven golden lampstands now the seven lampstands represent the church a church is to be the light of the world this church is to be a light to the community corresponds to the menorah in the Old Testament in the Old Testament the menorah was used to, to light up uh, and uh, you know the uh, <clears throat> holy place and all 
in the uh, offerings to God and all of these kinds of things in the same way uh, the church is to be the light of the world. Sometimes people uh, look in here and they say, well, I see a Bible on the communion table and then I see a, a menorah on the, on, the, on, the, on the communion table. Are we going Jewish around here or what? What's, the, what's going on here? But the menorah, the imagery again coming from here, Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so it represents, it's a reminder of the fact that Jesus is in our midst and, and, and present with us by his Holy Spirit. Anytime you've got the, the dynamic of the Word of God and, and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in a place, you, you've, got a, uh, you've got the potential for great dynamic in, in God's people. And so that's, that's what it, it, it represents. So he is in the midst of, of those seven golden lampstands. You know he's in the room right now. Which empty seat? And he's in the children's church right now. He listened to their worship tonight. He listened to our worship tonight. He's, he's, he's pleased. This is why the services aren't all about me and all about us. They're about him too, bringing pleasure to him. He's, he is in the room right now. He is in the midst of his church, the seven golden lampstands. Say hi to him, you know, in your heart. What a blessing to have his presence. And so that he is described as one like the Son of Man. And that word Son of Man, again, an Old Testament uh, reference to the Messiah. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And so that is what Jesus is. He description is like the Son of Man. Notice he's further described as being clothed with a garment down to his feet. So he's wearing a robe and he is girded about the chest with a golden band. Now this imagery again is the imagery of the Old Testament priest. The Old Testament priest wore a robe. And they also wore a sash around that robe, but the sash that they wore was a fabric sash that had gold woven into it. Here Jesus, the greater high priest, wears a robe, has the band of the sash, but the sash is made of solid gold because he's the greater high priest, as the writer of the book of Hebrews writes concerning him. He's the Lord of lords, he's the King of kings, but he never ceases to be our high priest in heaven, praying for us, interceding for us, representing us before uh, the Father. So. He is girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And this speaks of the fact that it, uh, it kind of speaks of someone who's older, speaks of his wisdom, speaks of his age. Excuse me a moment. Where's Dan Lewis? Dan, where are you? Would you just stand for a moment? <laughs> just go ahead and stand, get, just to give you a, a picture. Thank you very much. It may seem kind of weird to you, Dan, but 
you're who I think of every time I read this passage. And, uh, and uh, Romaine Schoenhoff, too. So we won't make him stand. And then his eyes uh, were like a flame of fire. So his eyes, are, they penetrate, they see everything. But um, it speaks of the fact that not only does the Lord see everything that goes on, but he judges what he sees. And he judges it from a perfect holiness. One of the problems that we have is that we grade on a curve, don't we? So if everybody in the culture begins to do a certain sin, we're no longer troubled by that sin any longer. So we no longer look at it objectively, especially if it's come into our life. Heaven it never has to deal with that obstacle. It, it, Jesus looks at things with an absolute holiness in his assessment. His feet were like fine brass as refined in the furnace. In the Old Testament, uh, the altar that the sacrifices were offered on was a bronze altar. And it's, so it speaks of, so to speak, of uh, judgment upon uh, sin. And one day Jesus is going to return, the Bible says, and he is going to uh, judge sin. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, that is man's, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And he will judge his feet like fine brass. And his voice as the sound of many waters. That's what his voice sounds like in, in heaven. I was at Niagara Falls one time on the Canadian side. I mean, you can walk right up to the edge there. I mean, there's a little four-foot wall and everything like that. And, but just the, the thunder of the water, the sound. I mean, it's just humbling uh, how awesome the sound is. And that's, that's his voice. And he had in his right hand seven stars. In verse 20, he'll tell us that those represent the seven angels or messengers or pastors of the seven churches that are in his right hand. And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And uh, so here the words of, of Jesus are likened to a sharp, two-edged sword. Now the Word of God is likened to a sword elsewhere in the scriptures in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer says for the word of God is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart but the word that's used for sword there in the Greek and the word that's used for sword here are two entirely different words in the book of, of Hebrews, it refers to a short sword that was used for close work in combat, for infighting. The sword that is used here in this passage is talking about a sword maybe five feet long, just a gigantic sword. We were, uh, uh, made our way through England on the way back from Israel, and you go into these castles, and they got swords like this like crazy. But a, when, a, when a man who knew how to use a sword like that would take a sword like that and begin to wield it in a battle, he would, he would bring tremendous devastation uh, quickly upon an entire area. And uh, so Jesus, his word coming forth, it won't be a literal sword that comes out of his mouth, but his words from his mouth will bring a, 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 a great devastation and judgment uh, upon 
evil. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Like looking at the sun. John says, I looked over there. And his, his countenance, his face is like looking at the sun in the middle of the day. You ever do that as a kid? Just once or twice. And then, you know, you learn your lesson on it. But wow, the, and it's the strength of it. And, and here's the reaction of John uh, to all of this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not seeing this, I'm not seeing this, I'm a dead man, I'm a dead man, I'm a dead man. <laughs> and here is John who had this beautiful, intimate relationship with Jesus in, in his three and a half year uh, public ministry and, uh, and sat so close to him in all of the feasts and, and all of these things. And when he sees Jesus in his eternal glory, I mean, he just falls down at, at Jesus' feet as, as if he were, were dead. The, the sight, the glory of it is overwhelming and, and paralyzing. Sometimes people say, you know, when I get to heaven, I've got a few questions I'm going to ask Jesus. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Or, you know, sometimes you see the old westerns and ha, 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 ha. The big guy in the sky and the whole, you know, and the, there's no high fives or back slapping here or any of these kinds of things. There's just tremendous reverence for who, who he is. Doesn't mean he's not our friend. Doesn't mean he's not our shepherd and our savior. But it, we understand that he's all of this uh, too. And I think that's, that's healthy. Do you think John was uh, happy in verse 17 that he was saved? Oh boy. Oh boy. And, and so will every single Christian when we, one day we, we see him. Notice what Jesus did <clears throat> to him when, when John falls down in this place. And John is obviously afraid for himself. First thing Jesus does is, is he touches him. And, uh, and he laid his right hand on him. And there's something reassuring about a touch, isn't there? And then he said to John, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Don't be afraid. No, no child of God who has ever trusted in Jesus. No, we don't need to be afraid of him. Not, not at, at any time. He, he's, a, he's a friend. He said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so he speaks to John about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the resulting victory of that resurrection, the victory over death and hell. He says, I have the keys of hell and of Death. He has him on his key ring. The two greatest enemies of man is hell, the judgment that our sin deserves, and then death. And, uh, and, and Jesus came to deliver us from those two enemies. And he has the key to those things. Now, what is a key? A key is authority. If you have a key to this church, and uh, I have a master key to this church, and that, this, I have a key that opens every single door in, in this church. And when I take that key and I insert it into the lock and I turn it, and the fact that I'm able to turn it and open that door represents the fact that I have authority over that door and over that lock. In the same way, Jesus has authority over hell and over death. They're defeated enemies by him and he has shared his victory over them with us as as his children he he has conquered them and he has conquered them for us then in verse 19 he says 
write the things which you have seen again the outline what had John just seen chapter 1 and the things which are chapters 2 and 3 the church age that John is in the middle of and then the things which will take place after this meta tauta which is chapter 4 on and describing the great tribulation following the rapture of the church the divine outline for understanding the book the mystery of the seven stars Jesus tells John John you're wondering about the seven stars and all the, and, and all here's what they mean the mystery of the seven stars which you saw uh, in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands here's here's the, the solution to the mystery the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches so here is an example of imagery that he uses some symbolism that he uses within the passage that he then interprets for us what it represents and what it means because we couldn't necessarily do it from the Old Testament and so we'll stop there obviously tonight and we'll pick things up in chapter 2 uh, next week